So, Gray, I feel like I need to make a statement, like a kind of press conference-like statement. Mm-hmm. Like how if the president does something really bad and needs to get everybody in a room to talk to them. People think I'm evil now uh, because of last our last episode. <laughs> Uh, you know when we were talking about all the email list stuff? Yeah, yeah. Right? And basically people think that I want to sell all of their information to companies. That That's that's some of the, the feedback that I have received uh, over the last two weeks. Okay, so, so Mike, I'm looking at our, our show notes, uh-huh. which, as I have commented many times, are very, very thorough show notes. But... You have a section where you want to justify and defend yourself for your marketing nature. Yep. And this section is hugely long. I've been thinking about it a lot, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can tell you've been thinking about it long. There are one, two, three, four, five, six top-level bullets mm-hmm. for this section, mm-hmm. which then have many, many sub-bullets in them, all of which I can see in advance are Mike trying to justify his position as a marketing man. <laughs> yep. It is much, much more thorough. I think you might have written more in your defense than the whole of the audience wrote in the Reddit yes. about your marketing nature. Yes, completely, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and really, it was like three people. But yeah. still, <laughs> I just, I, I, I did also feel this listening back. Like, I've heard you say this on Hello Internet a bunch, especially in the earlier days, where mm-hmm. like you'd listen back and you were like, oh man, look what I've done. And I felt <laughs> it at the time. So, like, so what I, what we were talking about was this Google Match thing, right? And the idea of people, like companies being able to upload their email databases and have that uh, do some targeted marketing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was talking about why I thought that was a good idea. Now, I think that is a good idea in traditional marketing if that's your business, right? I was thinking about it as in the stuff that I used to work in and how that would work for me if I was still in that business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But one of the key parts about marketing, Gray, is knowing your audience. Uh-huh. And I know my audience well enough that I would never do anything like this. <laughs> because it's let's say for example we set up an email list. Mhm. And we took people's email addresses and we t- spoke to them about stuff in the same way that you do. Mhm. If I sold that email address list, I would lose all of my listeners. Mhm. Because everyone would be really really mad about it. So I know not to do it, so I wouldn't do it. Yeah, but last time when we were talking about the email list mm-hmm. and the Google Match program, the idea on the table was Google Match would, in theory, want me to upload that database, not sell it, just upload it. And then I could advertise CGP Grey related products to people while they're just browsing around the web if Google knows who they are, if they can match those email addresses yeah. to people. And I believe your exact words were, that's an amazing idea. You it should is. do that. So. I didn't say you should do that, I don't think. (laughs) Like a monster. If I uploaded that database into Google's new advertising program and then told Google, I want you to follow these people around with ads for CGP Grey sweatshirts wherever they are on the internet. I think that's a great business idea. (laughs) This is the marketer inside you. It is a great idea, 
under traditional marketing methods. Uh-huh. But the same feeling I feel applies. It is a great idea if you're approaching it from a traditional way. Mm-hmm. But if you did it, it would be death to your business. That's that's the difference. That's the, the feeling that I have. It's like, <laughs> I could do all of this stuff. Like in the mm-hmm. same way that we could put ads on the relay site, which track people around the web. Like, mm-hmm. But we don't do any of that because mm-hmm. I know it would be detrimental to my business. Mm-hmm. Right. I think it's key to say that I understand my audience uh, and I know that people wouldn't like it, so I wouldn't mm-hmm. do it. So all I can do is ask you to trust that I'm not evil. And I will now, uh, because I know that that's difficult when you say that, I will now ask you, Gray, do you trust that I'm not evil? Yeah, I trust that you're not evil, you know, because we're we're working together. I wouldn't work with you if I thought that you were an evil business person. So that's what I thought the only way I could get out of this, right? <laughs> because I know everything that I've just said could still be used against me. Right. I need to lean upon the goodwill people have for you as a barometer of my uh, evilness, right? Yeah, so you're basically a credibility leech right now. That's yes. what you've just worked uh-huh. me into here, uh-huh. right, is, is you think people will trust me that you're not an evil person, an yep. evil business person. It's like, I have, a tr- I have an appreciation for traditional marketing and how it works, uh-huh. but this type of stuff works for big businesses because it doesn't matter to them if they upset a percentage of people, right? Because mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're working on such a large scale. But the percentage of our audience that would be upset by doing something like this is way higher than a bank. So that's why I know that I should never do it. Hmm. Well, again, I will uh, I will take your word at the experience that I have had with podcasts, which is listening back to yourself and being astounded by how remarkably unclear you are. Because I don't remember any part of that conversation <laughs> involving the words, you shouldn't do it, it would be bad for your business. I just remember that conversation. Oh, no, no, we did. I didn't say that. I'm saying that now. <laughs> right, uh, right. But I didn't say that then. That was <laughs> yeah. the problem. I yeah. was talking about why it would be a good idea, but it would actually be a worse idea than a good idea. Right. But it seems like that is... That is a rather key part to not have included, uh, because I had uh, I had loaded up on my my screen a tweet that I think summarized what I was thinking during that conversation better than I could have said it. But uh, Anthony C on Twitter tweeted at you and said, "People sitting at home." Waiting for special offers targeted to them is a fairy tale they tell baby marketers. I felt like that was exactly the feeling that I had during that whole conversation. I saw <laughs> this and I bit my tongue, right? <laughs> because it's it's like that Anthony is is uh, is mocking my marketing knowledge, <laughs> and of course I know people don't sit at home waiting for offers. Well, I know. But targeted <laughs> offers have a better response than non-targeted offers. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not imagining people sitting there, like, cross-legged, looking at the mailbox and just with their hands out waiting for the mail to come every morning. But I just know from my time of doing this stuff, if you can mm. target something, right. it has massively better response rates. So this is like what you do with the targeting for your email newsletter. So you ask people what they want to know about. Right, And right. then they get things that are related to them. That's the targeting. Is there anything else from this gigantic bullet-pointed list that you want to talk about? Or or was really this, this list here that I'm looking at an act of catharsis for you? 
oh yeah, I needed to get all this stuff out, and then I figured I would come, I would maybe bring points forward from this multiple, multiple hundred word essay that I've written. Uh-huh. Uh, I expect that I will probably be pulling from this essay again in our next episode. Right. Yeah. As people continue to mine uh, my evil ways from the words that I speak. There we go. I am a nice guy. I promise. Yeah. Yeah, of course. So, you know, we were talking about content blockers last time. Yes, we were talking about content blockers. Um, I have installed another content blocker, but this one is not an ad blocker. So this is like one of the good things about these content blockers is it can block anything in in your web browsing world. Mm-hmm. And I've found this was sent to me by my friend Rob. Um, this is a content blocker to block the cookie notices on European Union websites. Oh, those are so annoying. So for people that don't don't know, maybe if you're not in the EU or you don't visit websites from the EU, every time you go to a website that's part of the European Union it pops up a little alert to tell you about the cookie policy that you have to go, th- like you have to click continue or close to, to know that you're having cookies tracked on you. And this this blocker basically just removes all of those notices, which is fantastic. It's called cookie box. Those things are so annoying. I don't know. I cannot, I'm not exactly sure how that works i don't like if someone from america is just browsing eu websites i don't know if they see that or not yeah i don't know i don't know that either i i know it's a european union thing so i know that like websites in the eu have it on there but i don't know if it's restricted to people surfing from the eu as well yeah so americans listening uh might not have any idea what we're talking about but it is hugely irritating that every time you go to a website they're like oh by the way did you know that we use this completely standard piece of web technology please click yes to allow us to use this standard piece of web technology and it's just irritating and very often on ios it ends up covering up stuff like it's hard to even click yes you want to to continue onward so this is this is i think a very interesting use of content blockers which is not ad blocking yeah so I was doing my evil marketing um, during the time that cookies were came around. This like cookie warning, and mm-hmm. I remember it was referred to in the company as Cookie Apocalypse, which I thought was quite funny mm-hmm. because everyone knew how worse it makes everybody's websites, right? <laughs> Especially on mobile, right? Like the on the uh, on the app store description page for Cookie Box, there's a picture of the BBC website, and like it's on an iPhone six, and it's fifty percent of the page. The warning. Yeah. Yeah, it's just. Yeah, it's just, it's absolutely irritating. It's one of those laws that I think just accomplishes nothing. Like, what are you trying to protect people from? Why is this requirement here? Uh, of all of the tracking that ever happens, like, is this the worst kind? I don't really think so. It's just, yeah. It it seems like this was a great idea fifteen years ago when the web was newer, but this is just just so way behind the times now that it's just irritating. So this is an example of one that I like. There are like uh, so the most popular I think blocker at the moment, one blocker, also does this. But it's also an app blocker as well. But it can also block the cookie stuff. But if you're looking for just an app that does that, this is one of them, which is quite cool. I actually wanted to mention one blocker uh, in a somewhat related fashion, talking about content blocking that is not necessarily ad blocking, because uh, one blocker is what I have installed on my iOS devices and. Straight away, one of the things I did notice was, yes, that it blocks the EU cookies. <laughs> oh, thank God. <laughs> this is just great. But you can use OneBlocker to write your own 
custom blocking of whatever you want. Oh, wow. They actually have a little uh, web interface where you can, if you know regular expressions, you can write out a regular expression to do content blocking of just about anything that you want. So if you want to, you can disable all of the ad blocking stuff that's in there and then just kind of create your own little um, blocker if, if that's something that you want to do. And if you have a little bit of technical knowledge or you at least know about how to use wildcards in URL strings. I'm doing something with that right now, but... Um, We'll probably talk about that on the next episode. But I just wanted to give that a little bit of a shout out as another interesting way that content blockers can be used that is not ad blocking. You'll be happy to know that my Cortex t-shirts have finally arrived. Oh, yeah? (laughs) Yeah, they arrived on Tuesday. I have had so many problems with the customs and the post and everything. It's been a nightmare, but my four t-shirts arrived. And over the last three days, I've just been wearing monkey brain t-shirts. I just keep changing them. And I'm in blue today, obviously. Um, because blue is the correct color. It's the correct color for you, yeah. Well, I just came back from a trip um, to Indianapolis, which we'll talk about a little bit later on in the show. Mm-hmm. I was at a conference, and I saw a good handful of Monkey Brain t-shirts, and the majority I saw were blue. So I think people were pandering because they knew I was going to be there. However, it felt good. Yeah, that's not a random sampling of the population. No, no, it's completely biased. However, I still liked it very much to see right. a lot of blue blue Cortex monkey brain t-shirts floating around uh, the conference. It was very nice to see. Everybody loves bias in their favor. Today's episode of Cortex is brought to you very kindly by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses that you can get for yourself for just a fraction of the price that you're used to paying in stores. The mattress industry has always been one that's difficult to get into from a price perspective because you are going to buy something that's pretty expensive and the way that you have to do it is really kind of weird. You go to a store and you sit on a bed for a moment or two, and then you decide if you want to sleep in that bed for the next 10 years. The mattress that you're sometimes sitting on in a store, you don't know if it's going to be the right one for you. So Casper is here to revolutionize everything about the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms, passing those savings on to you, creating new products, and creating a new experience that goes along with it. A Casper mattress will provide you resilience and long-lasting supportive comfort. Casper mattresses are one of a kind. They've created their own type of mattress. It's a hybrid that combines premium latex foam and memory foam together. These two technologies come together beautifully for better nights and brighter days. It has just the right sink and just the right bounce. It's the best of both. Usually, a mattress that you'll find in a store is going to cost you well over $1,500. But Casper mattresses cost between $500 for a twin-sized, $750 for a full-sized, $850 for a queen, and $950 for a king, which is fantastic. And even better, all Casper mattresses are made in America. Casper understands that the idea of buying a mattress online can seem kind of crazy, right? We're used to going to the showroom and sitting on them. You know, you get those at least a couple of minutes, but at least you get to feel how it feels. Casper understands how important this is. So buying a mattress from them is completely risk-free. They will ship it to you for free. And you will be able to return it within a 100-day period for free as well if you're not happy. It is that simple. You will get to sleep on this bed for three months before you can decide if it's the right one for you. That is a complete risk-free experience and a brand new way to try out a mattress. They're shipped to you in this fantastic box where opening it is an experience all of its own because like the box is super small and you cut it open and it like breathes life in. You see your mattress come to life before you. You try it out for 100 days If you're not happy, you'll send it back. 
but I'm sure that you will be happy because they've built something super awesome. Listeners of this show can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash cortex and using the code cortex at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Please see the site for details. Thank you so much to Casper for supporting this show and Relay FM. Yesterday evening, I was doing some busy work and preparing more of our episodes for YouTube. Following the Grey Tutorial, yeah, of course. Having fun with that? Yep, it's fantastic. I did just want to mention about the Grey Tutorial. It It's not a public thing, um, unfortunately. A, a bunch of people asked for it to be included in the show notes. Uh, <laughs> but we can't do it because it's all specific stuff to Cortex and you know those kinds of things. I, I'm afraid there is no Grey YouTube tutorial. Maybe you should think about that one day. People might like it. Yeah, it'll be relevant for exactly one day before YouTube changes something in the background. This is the problem, right? <laughs> yeah. So, for example, yesterday while I was doing it, I came across two new pieces of UI that I hadn't seen <laughs> in any of my other instances of trying to do this. Uh-huh. One of them was a a processing progress bar, which seems mm-hmm. like a genius thing to have. Because mm-hmm. one of the things that we were complaining about was that when it when you upload your video and it goes into processing, it can just seem like a, an amount of time that you have no idea about. Mm-hmm. Um, so it makes a ton of sense to have a progress bar, but for some reason that doesn't show every time. Yeah, you sent me the screenshot and you were really excited as though someone working at YouTube listened and changed this for you immediately. And I didn't even know what you were trying to point out because to me that little percentage processing bar is just one of the many pieces of UI that sometimes it's there, sometimes it isn't. Who knows? Who knows why it is there? Who knows why it isn't? I would say I see it about 25% of the time when I upload something. And the rest of the time, it's just, you know, whatever. It just says processing and you don't get the little indication of when it's done. If you get that bar in the future, Mike, you may be happy to know that sometimes it'll zoom all the way to 95%. And then just stay there for a really long time at 95%. Maybe it's processing. Maybe it's not. Who knows? Who knows? But there's still, even with that processing bar, it's just telling me how long it takes to process to like 360p. And I still have no idea how long it takes to get to 1080. Like right. in an impossible amount of time, um, I continue to hate YouTube. <laughs> yeah, you hate the YouTube backend. What was the other thing that you saw that was new? That You said there were two things? Oh, also where you put the ads. So, you know, you can put the ads before and after the video. Um, previously it was just like boxes that you checked this time mm-hmm. it was like a graphic and oh yeah kind of slid around this slider on the graphic or something i think i have seen that graphic exactly once and i haven't seen it <laughs> since and this is this is what i was telling you last time is the craziness of of youtube it's these this back end pieces come and pieces go. It's not even like it just changes consistently. And I, st- I would just love to know what the reasoning is behind it. Again, my guess is it's some kind of A-B testing randomly on a small portion of the people who are using the background. That's my guess about what it is. Like they're just taking 5% of the population on a given day and just trying out new stuff. But if you use YouTube a lot, like you're going to, you're going to bump into this stuff relatively frequently. And it is also why... I cannot imagine doing a tutorial on how to do anything on YouTube because it just it wouldn't stay relevant for very long. Or, or you just hear constantly from people trying to do stuff that the screen doesn't look the way it looked in your tutorial. So Yeah, it's it, I, I don't know how anybody could, could make something like this because I get confused every time. Like, And I'm not silly. Like I know how to deal with these things. But every time I open it, like I'm following along with this tutorial and d- the UI is just not the same. So I have to kind of just guess. 
yeah there i just happened to run into something this weekend uh <laughs> that was i was on youtube's official help pages trying to get something done and looking at their <laughs> official how to do a thing documents and their documents didn't match the screen that i was on that it had changed since they had written their official documents <laughs> that kind of moment is just hugely frustrating like, i am on your official support page that i got to by clicking help on the page that i want help with and this thing is not relevant it works entirely differently now thanks thanks a whole lot <laughs> we love you youtube <laughs> yeah and uh, were you doing this did you get a new mac i know that your mac you had problems did you buy one and has it arrived yet i am talking to you on my new mac right now me too i have one <laughs> Oh, look at us. We're a new iMac buddies. <laughs> so where's the old one? Uh, the <laughs> <laughs> That's why I wanted to ask you about this. Yeah, one. there we go. I just wanted to see what had happened. <laughs> yeah, you, you want to you see what had happened. <laughs> Long story short is who knows why, but for some reason uh, I was I was able to get the old one to boot again. Like, I don't know why I was just playing around with it and seeing if I could if I could get it to turn on at all. And I got it to the point where at least I could boot it and reformat it and then see if I could fix the HFS Plus stuff. So I actually did get it back into a working state. But my policy on this stuff is I just do not trust a computer when that kind of thing has happened. It has failed you now. I I know, I know that I will hear from many of the computer nerds talking about the nature of HFS plus errors and how they are software errors and how they are random and how it doesn't have anything to do with the hard drive. It's not like the hard drive is failing. This kind of thing can just happen. So there's nothing wrong with the system if you if you were able to eventually get it to reformat. I know all of that, but it is it is irrelevant. I just have this feeling like I will never trust you again, computer. And there are many projects where I cannot have it go down in the middle of a project. And no matter how small the error is, I just don't even want to think about that as a possibility. So even though I did get that computer into a working state, it has done the shuffle down progress in our house, which is that we used to have a, a very old non-retina iMac that functioned as our computer screen. And that iMac was in terrible, terrible state. It was borderline unusable. And so I thought, okay, perfect. Everything has just worked out well here. That old computer, which was our TV, it's time for that thing to just go. And now what was previously my work computer is now functioning as our TV. Because if there's a catastrophic error on a computer that is functioning just as a TV, it doesn't matter. Because we're just watching Netflix or whatever on there. And uh, now I have a nice bigger retina screen, which is acting as our TV. So everything is good. It's all come up roses. Yeah, everything's coming up gray. That's how it works. <laughs> so last week when you were doing your final pass through of the show after I had done the edit and passed it over to you for you to listen through before we published it, mm -hmm. you sent me back over iMessage a video of you driving a truck. Uh, yeah, driving a truck. On the computer. I can't remember why I sent you this video. I don't know why you did it either. We'd spoken about this game a long time ago. What's it called? This is called Euro Truck Simulator 2. 
Oh, obviously the second edition. Yeah, there's something about the two which I find really entertaining. <laughs> Don't go near edition one. That hasn't got all the road markings correct. Because <laughs> yeah. I'd assumed that you'd obviously started playing this game for a reason unknown to me that hopefully I'll be able to understand in a moment. And I thought, there's only one reason you've sent me this video. It's like something funny happens at the end. Like maybe you crash and like fall off a cliff. Mm -hmm. But no, it's just four minutes of you just driving down motorways. Yeah, I think I was just driving across a bridge and was delivering some onions to France. <laughs> of course you were. And you also told me, and there's, I must tell the listeners this, that you mm -hmm. turned all the lights off at home because you were driving overnight and you felt like you had to be in the correct mood. Yeah, yeah. to be clear, it was nighttime in the game. Uh -huh. And so it felt, uh, it felt like setting the scene correctly to turn off all the lights in my office. So it really did feel a bit more like driving at night. What compelled you to start playing Euro Truck Simulator 2? <laughs> okay. This was a joke in an right. earlier episode of the show, right? And now you've been sucked in. Since I mentioned Euro Truck Simulator 2 on the podcast, I just kept hearing in these small dribs and drabs from people little remarks on Twitter or an email about how, oh, they play Euro Truck Simulator while they listen to podcasts. And it's really an enjoyable experience and it was like chinese water torture where it's just like every once in a while these little drips would come in about oh this is really fun to do and just the ridiculousness of a thing called euro truck simulator i finally decided you know what the hell with it i'm gonna cave and let me just try this out let me just see how this goes because i've just i made myself curious about this over time and <laughs> yes <laughs> the end result was I got totally, totally hooked on the game. And the original the original intent here was, uh, as, as is very often the case, when I do some edits of the podcast, so uh, usually on, on Hello Internet when I do the first and the final edits of that podcast, I usually want something else to do on the screen because I'm, I'm listening just for very broad changes or things that need to be fixed for the first and final one. And then with Cortex, I only do the final edit where you've done most of the work and then you send it to me to give a listen through. And so I've always found that doing a video game during that time is is a, a helpful tool. Like it keeps me alert so that I'm still paying attention to what I'm listening to and I don't get bored or, or like zoned out by the podcast. So I, I'm always looking for games to play. And so I thought I would give Euro Truck Simulator a try. I thought like, okay, this will be the one that I try this time for editing Cortex. And man, it just, I don't even know if I can call it a game, but it really did, it really did just suck me in. And I could see exactly what everybody who had messaged me over the past couple of months was saying, that it feels surprisingly like driving if you're also listening to something that is very much like listening to talk radio it's like oh yeah here i am i'm driving it fits listening yeah. to a podcast and driving a truck they, they they fit in a in a weird way it is amazing amazing synergy it's hard to explain and so now i find myself in the in the position of oh i know i made fun of euro truck simulator last time but seriously people if you haven't tried oh, 
if you haven't tried listening to a podcast while driving an imaginary truck from London to Prague, you're really missing out. <laughs> See, I want to do it now, but I feel I would feel embarrassed if anybody saw me. You gotta, you gotta let that go. Like, if I'm playing this game and Adina comes home, she's like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "Oh, I'm driving a truck to Scotland." Because right. I need to deliver the maple syrup. Right. Like, you know, I'm going to look like a madman. <laughs> you have to let that go, Mike. You know, you, you enjoy what you enjoy. I ended up uploading, I don't know, I think like a 40 minute long video to my second YouTube channel. That was just a really long drive. <laughs> also, people can see then. They can see what it's like for Gray to drive a truck. Yeah, yeah. On, on, uh, on CGP Grey 2, where I only upload very boring, very long videos sometimes, I, I put up a video there that I guess I'll put in the show notes so people can see what it looks like to oh, drive great. in Euro Truck Simulator. 20,000 people have watched this. <laughs> I think that's worse than you playing it. You know, I don't know why people watch it. I hope that you can look at the graph and just see a massive decline after a minute. That's what I hope. I really hope. I don't want people watching 40 minutes of you driving a truck. Let me look it up. The worst part of all of this is, like, I'm interested in playing it, but I can't do it because I need to be more focused during the edit that I do, right? There's even, like, a GPS. There's a GPS on here. <laughs> that part really tickles me. The fact that there is a GPS within the game that you have to follow is so much like driving a truck. <laughs> I feel like it would maybe be more fun if there was no GPS. Oh, you've nearly went right off the road there, Gray. Smash into a lamppost, you just started. Oh, this is perhaps the most interesting audience retention graph I have ever seen on YouTube. So for the for the listeners, uh, one of the parts of the YouTube backend, which is good, which I always want to give YouTube credit for, is they are crazy with analytics and stuff that you can find out about the viewers. And they include this chart that shows when people stop watching the video, which is surprisingly helpful. But I've never seen a graph like this one because it starts off below average, meaning that more than an average number of people stop watching within the first minute. But it does nothing but pick up steam so that by the 20 minute mark, <laughs> it's now losing viewers at an average rate for a comparable video. And by the end, by the end at the 40 minute mark, it's, it's maxed out the chart for the number of people who are still watching. So this confirms to me that right out of the gate, a large number of people are like, you know what, I'm not going to watch an imaginary truck drive across a continent. But there's a significant number of people who watch all the way to the end who realize, yes, this is exactly what they didn't know they needed in life. You're not very good at p uh, attaching to trailers. That's what I'm learning. Oh, yeah. Well, not very good at that bit, Gray. Oh, that's a terrible <laughs> angle I'm watching right now. Now, that's that's going to be a disaster. Oh, wait, hang on. No, you, you made Oh, you made it. You made it. Congratulations to you. Thank you. For anyone who actually does give this a try. I just need to, to immediately recommend something, which I didn't know when I was watching this video. But there are a variety of ways to try to control the truck. Don't try to drive it by the keyboard. That'll, that'll make you go crazy. You can get by with a mouse, but what I eventually learned is that a trackball is a very good input device for this game. That's really where it's at. Yeah, I can I can imagine that actually. I can imagine that being a nicer nicer movement because it's a ball and you turn the ball left and right to go left and right. Exactly. Trackball is really good unless 
you want to really go off the deep end. Please don't tell, which, please tell me you haven't done this. Which I oh, have been now. seriously investigating. You can drop oh, a couple God. hundred dollars. Don't do it. <laughs> to get it. a force feedback pretend steering wheel. <laughs> Graham, please don't do this. And pedals no, and a gear don't, shifter. Please don't do this. <laughs> do you know what the best part is? I've been looking into this. I'm sure you I know. have never ever learned to drive any other car than an automatic. So I don't even know how to shift gears. But I found myself looking up videos of like, oh, I wonder how you do shift gears so that I can learn how to drive a manual truck that's not real. <laughs> the biggest hurdle for me is that all of these wheels are dependent on windows. And so they don't work with force feedback and a bunch of the other um, features on a Mac. But I did start a thread on the Euro Truck subreddit about trying to figure out if this stuff can work in a virtual machine on Mac so that I can have it running in parallel. So here's how you start this, right? You, you start talking about this and you say, oh, I've been doing some research. The, making it sound like, oh, I'm just seeing what it would be like. You would already own one if it worked on the Mac. That's what I can see here. You would have bought one already. And you make it sound like, oh, I'm just looking into it. The only reason you don't have one is because it doesn't work. You would have bought one by now. And I am not sure how I feel about that. My imagination of you sitting there in your computer chair with pedals at your feet, a gear shifter to your side, and a steering wheel in front of you, and you're driving down the autobahn listening to Hello Internet. I'm not sure how I feel about that whole scenario. Okay, so aside from the fact that I have gone in really deep on this, quote, game that is barely a game. It's not I, a game, really. I know, I know. <laughs> I, I, yeah, it, it's, it is what it is. But I do have an actual work case for this. I mean, obviously not the steering wheel or anything. But I did find this interesting, and I want to talk a little bit just more broadly to back up a little bit from the craziness of, of the particulars of this about why I do play uh, games during certain cuts of the podcast and why I actually find it a useful tool is I'm doing something while I'm listening. And what, what I have a tendency to do is really intensely edit the podcasts if I don't find a way to slow myself down or distract myself from it. So the middle edit of Hello Internet that I do is an intense, intense edit of that show. It is possibly too long. You do edit that show too much because, I mean, I don't know how you feel about the edit when I give you the Cortex edit, but you don't mm. ever really do too much to it. Which makes me think that you have an you have an acceptable standard level, which mm -hmm. is a lot lot lower than what you allow yourself to do for Hello Internet. Yeah, the Hello Internet is is a little crazy, but I have to get it to a certain stage. But it's it's it may be too much because it is not uncommon for a Hello Internet episode to have a thousand to twelve hundred cuts in an episode. Yeah, I mean, but the thing is, though, an average Cortex edit will have seven hundred. Are you talking about uh, audio segments? Uh, edit points. So when you when you open up that little tray on the right side, and it and it shows you how many little audio parts there are in there. Like the last episode was over seven hundred. Oh yeah, if you're doing if you're doing that thing, then it's like two thousand for Halloween or something. 
Yeah, I think the last episode was just about 1,700 edit points. Oh. It's a little, it was a little bit unusual, that one. It's, it's no, not normally that high, which is why I noticed. But So I have a tendency to edit that show quite a lot. But so here is where... Oh, you just got a speeding offense. <laughs> I'm watching this video. So I'll, get, I'll come back to that in a moment, the fact that I'm still watching this. But <laughs> okay. But so here is where I find the game is a useful tool because the game is an engaging thing. There's a certain amount of friction to alt-tabbing out of the game to fix something in the audio. And so when you say, oh, I don't change a lot in Cortex, the game is part of the tool so that I don't spend Mm. an entire afternoon making Cortex exactly the way that I want it. Because there are lots of little things in the final edit that if I was just sitting there looking at the screen watching the audio go by, I would take the time to fix every single one of those. Yeah, because you've loosened the amount that you've done over time. Yeah. That's one of the things that when I do the second edit of Hello Internet, that's what I'm doing. I just have the, the podcast on the screen and I edit everything as I see it go by. But so when I do that final edit, having the game to engage me that little bit of a friction means i'm not going to alt tab out every 10 seconds to adjust something i'm going to alt tab out much much less frequently and only for the bigger things that it feels like okay it is worth it to switch for a second fix something and then switch back so that's why i can make a use case for playing a game during the final edit actually decreases the amount of time that I would spend otherwise. Because if I was just looking at it, I know I would I would edit the show too much if I didn't distract myself to some extent in the final cut. So that's a, that's a long way of, of justifying why I was driving a car across Europe. So the problem that I have now mm-hmm. is I have sat here for the last 10 minutes mm-hmm. watching you drive. Mm-hmm. Which, So I have upset some co-hosts of my shows in the past with the um, admission that I have been known to play video games whilst recording podcasts. Mm -hmm. And the reason I do this is a very similar reason for you. What it does is it stops me doing other things, like Mm -hmm. somehow finding myself in another tab which might have Twitter in it. Right. Um, Because I... Um, um, I can concentrate a lot better on a show when I have something to occupy my eyes and my hands. Mm-hmm. It just helps me listen better. Oh, yeah. So I'm looking at this, and I'm like, this looks like a very, except for the fact that you need to scratch into a wall, it looks like a very like low-engagement video game. That's exactly right. It's very low engagement. And I'm thinking, I could imagine me playing this game right now whilst talking to you. Mm-hmm. Can you play, just out of interest, is there a multiplayer mode of this? There is a multiplayer mode, yes. Because I now quite like the idea of us doing a normal episode, but both of us trucking across (laughs) Germany, right, whilst we're recording. Not really making any reference to it, but making our delivery. Yeah, I mean, well, I'm driving right now. I just haven't made any reference to it, but... Really? No, not really, Mike. I'm uh, sorry. <laughs> I am not you. It when wouldn't I have am... bothered me. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't do it because when I do the podcasts, I I find that I have to concentrate a lot. I'm it it's just part of the it's just part of the way it works. So yeah. I can't possibly do anything else. 
And I want to be really clear. That's not me saying like, oh, I'm giving this my full attention and I can't believe you're over, over there playing threes or whatever it is that you play. Because it's just knowing yourself and knowing how you work. And I saw a little bit of this when I was a teacher that is a bit of a divide with teachers about students doodling. But I was just about to bring up doodling because that's what I do when we record. Yeah. There were definitely students I could tell that they would be better in class if they could doodle while a lecture was happening. Yeah. And my policy on that was always, if you're not being disruptive, I don't have a problem with you doodling. And I think for some students, they need to keep the visual part of their brain active while they are listening to something. Or they just need to keep their hands active. And so that's that's why I I never get worried about, oh, is Mike paying attention or is Mike, you know, doodling or playing a game or something over there? Because you know you well enough to know that this is part of the process for you, that this helps. And I completely agree with what you said before, that a low engagement video game helps me stay focused on for Hello Internet, a piece of audio that at that point I have heard four times because we recorded it and I've edited it already a couple of times and like now it's the final thing. Like it it helps the focus stay in place to have something like that. So I've gone from being very disappointed in you mm-hmm. to now I have the tab open, I have the page open to buy this video game. It's only a matter of time until you get a wheel if I can figure out how to make them work on Mac. <laughs> I'm really scared now because I... I can sell the case for the wheel because think about how easy it would be. It, it like reduces the engagement even further. You can just keep one hand on the wheel while you're talking to your co-hosts. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Drive Time with Mike and Gray. Yeah. You're on the air, caller. This episode of Cortex is brought to you by Fracture. Fractures are really like no other photograph you're going to have in your house. They're printed directly onto glass, but they are surprisingly lightweight and easy to mount on the wall or display on your desk. They look just fantastic. And they are ridiculously easy to make. You just go to their website, you upload whatever image you want, tell them what size it is you want, and they ship it right to your door. And it really can be any image that you want to have printed out. I mean, photographs are great. They make excellent gifts. Hint, hint, the holidays are coming up. But maybe you're playing a video game. Some games are, quite frankly, breathtakingly beautiful. Maybe they're so beautiful you feel like you want to take a quick screen grab of what you are looking at. That's an image too. You can upload your video game screenshots to Fracture and get them printed out and put up on your wall. Just saying, I can imagine some pretty cool looking gamer rooms covered in Fractures. Maybe one of you listeners will create such a thing and let us and Fracture know on Twitter. Now the Fractures are hand assembled in their Fractory in Gainesville, Florida. But this does mean that because Fracture has become so popular and because they are lovingly individually assembled, if you are thinking about getting one of these done for the holidays, you seriously need to act right now to make sure that you get it in time. 
head over to FractureMe.com and use the code CORTEX to get 15% off your first order. Seriously, if you haven't done your Christmas shopping, there are plenty, plenty of family members who would love to receive fractures of you and those you love as gifts. So head on over to FractureMe.com and use the offer code CORTEX to get a great gift for you or those you love or set up your awesome gaming room and also to support Cortex and all of Relay FM. So I have just gotten back from a trip. I mentioned that I was at a conference and I gave a talk during this conference. I was the keynote speaker at a conference called Release Notes, which was about um, about building businesses but focused on iOS app developers. So people that make apps for a living and make and helping them think about their business as a business right? Because uh, it, there can be far too many times where you think, I'm an independent app developer and this is lovely and the money will come. And sometimes you have to think about business. So they invited me to speak because I've been running a business for a year. And obviously a part of all of this is creating a presentation. So I'd been working on it for a few months and seriously over the last few weeks beforehand. Mm-hmm. And part of this step was practicing the presentation to you, which was the worst part uh, in the nicest possible way, I w- I think I was more nervous presenting to you than I was actually giving the talk. Yeah, I think I bullied you into this a little bit. I'm pleased that you did, though. I I was very happy that you offered your time, and I appreciated that. It was a very helpful part of the process. Yeah, because I, I know this this sort of thing is very uncomfortable to do, which is why I was a little bit insistent on. I think this would be helpful for you to do even if it feels very awkward giving a presentation to a room with just one person in it yeah you were uh i've i've never known you to be so fixed on logistics before (laughs) oh yeah how so well just in so much as like we were we were messaging late in the evening as as you were trying to get rooms booked for us to, to do this in uh so i could i could tell that this was something that you specifically wanted to happen well, it's serious business. It we is. had to book a room in my co-working space, mm-hmm. which you got to visit, mm-hmm. so that you would have a place that felt like an official place to give the presentation. So imagine this, dear listener, that you are standing in a long room and there is a conference table in front of you which sits about 12 people. You know, you've seen these in the movies, at least. These long wooden tables. And you're standing there where you've got a TV behind you with the presentation you've been working on for a few weeks. And you've got your laptop in front of you with your notes. Sitting at the other end of that table is CGP Grey with a legal pad and a pen. And he mm-hmm. says to you, I'm going to keep a very stern face. <laughs> Which he does. Uh, with a couple of exceptions, I was able to make you laugh when you, I know you didn't want to. And mm-hmm. the whole time that you're giving this presentation, Grey is sitting there and making notes about you. Imagine how that feels. It was nerve-wracking. It seems like a low-pressure situation. <laughs> oh yeah, no problem. I'd given this presentation to a bunch of different people and it was all fine. Mm-hmm. I This is the only time I screwed up and I screwed up so badly during this presentation I had to, be, to, to begin it again. Mm-hmm. I, could, I got so far into a hole I couldn't get back out again mm-hmm. and had to just say we need to start over. Mm-hmm. But that was actually a very useful part of the whole process because it helped me fix a part of the presentation. So I wanted to thank you for your help. I'm definitely glad that you found it helpful. I wanted to do this with you because back when I was learning to be a teacher, 
I had this done to me as part of teacher training. And I often think back to that. And it was a, a deeply, deeply uncomfortable experience where uh, I had someone who was in charge of the teacher training program. And what they made you do was they say, okay, you have to prepare uh, a lecture on a topic. I think it was maybe only half an hour. And my advisor did the same thing, sit at the other end of a table and you give a presentation to her. And she sat there very sternly the whole time. And the other detail that you left out here, Mike, is that I was also recording you while you were giving the presentation. Yeah, I have to own up that I couldn't watch that video. <laughs> That's I was going to ask. And uh, yeah, so I, I, in addition to having my advisor watching me, she was also doing a video recording of me giving the presentation. And that experience was so deeply uncomfortable because... Mm-hmm. She laid bare all of the faults that I had as a presenter. And then I also watched the video and could see that there was no arguing with her on a few points about things that I did when I was giving a presentation. It's like, I can't get defensive about this. I just do X, Y, and Z poorly. And I can see it right there on the film. But that single session probably helped more than almost anything during my teacher training with actually being able to talk in front of a classroom, is being aware of the things that you do badly and attempting to fix them. So it was because of that and because you were giving this this keynote presentation, I thought, I really do want to try to, to help you with this if I can. But I was... I was going to put money on the table that you might not have been able to bring yourself to watch the actual video of you doing the presentation because that stuff is just, it's just so, so intensely awkward to see yourself on a video in the same way that many people find it very intensely uncomfortable to hear their own recorded voice. It's a thing that you, you just have to get used to, but it is deeply uncomfortable the first time you do it. Yeah, because you gave me some really good pointers, some that were like, you know, you're saying to me, like, basically fix things that you don't know you're doing, which is, you know, difficult. Mm-hmm. Like you told me about like the way I was pushing my glasses on my face and the way I was kind of like shifting awkwardly from side to side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, it's like, I don't even know I'm doing those things. So it was already so much to think about. I didn't, I couldn't bear seeing it <laughs> because then I knew I wouldn't be able to stop thinking about it. Mm-hmm. But when I was on stage, I was thinking about it, right? I was like, don't, don't push your glasses up now. Mm-hmm. And like every time I wanted to, to shift to the side, I took a step. Mm-hmm. So I was probably pacing like a madman when I was giving the presentation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it went really well. And I, I deeply appreciated the assistance that you gave me. And I will recommend it to anyone that you need to find someone who will be who will lay it all bare with you because I, I presented it to my family and to my girlfriend and she is also very good at giving real good pointers but um one thing that i didn't do is like i wasn't standing up at any point when i was giving the presentation to her mm-hmm. um and you basically made me go into full-on mode like you need to completely do this as you're going to do it in front of people yeah you have to do it for real for anybody giving a presentation you absolutely have to do it as though it's really going to happen. And I've given a few presentations in my time, not any recently, but when I was preparing for things, I would always 
do the presentation standing up as though you're on a stage, you know, talking to a group of people. You have to do it like that. And and also for anyone preparing for a presentation, no matter how good your family is at giving you feedback or your close friends, there's always something in your mind that just never quite fully trust them to be fully honest, no matter how fully honest they are being. So it it helps to have someone who can really be objective. Like get someone who you really know is able to be objective watching you do a presentation. Yeah. It's it's like family is great and they might be telling you the 100% truth, but you in your mind are always going to doubt just how truthful they are when you're when you're hearing their feedback. Like it's, that's just not something that you can you can necessarily help. But giving presentations is high stakes stuff. Oh yeah, everybody needs a gray. That's that's what I've learned. I should start a side business. CGPs, <laughs> but you'd have to sit behind some sort of screen, so people couldn't see you, right? No, no, no. I do it. I do it in person. But it would be a lot of money, right? Yeah, actually, that makes this sound like an even better idea for a business. I like this. <laughs> are you a, are you a, are you a businessman in London with a lot of money and a very important presentation to give? Get in touch. <laughs> I recommend this. I recommend this. <laughs> there we go. Yet another yet another thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. But yeah, so the presentation went well because we haven't actually really spoken about it since since you since you did did it. I I messaged you right after it had happened just because I wanted to know that it wasn't a total disaster. But you were you were confident with the whole with the whole event. Yeah, I was actually. I mean, I was I was nervous before, but I got myself into like a zone of the way that I was going to prepare in the hours leading up to it. Um, mm-hmm. And luckily, my my talk was on the first day of the conference, mm-hmm. so I could get it out of the way. It was the first talk; it was the opening keynote. Mm-hmm. Um, and once I got on the stage, I knew I was talking too fast to begin. Um, and then once I got kind of like once I could hear people laughing at the jokes that I intended to make, I I knew that then people were on my side. Mm-hmm. And that felt really good, and then I, I was I felt confident to actually deliver the rest of it. And I came in at time, so it was like forty minutes, and I had between mm-hmm. like thirty and forty five minutes. So I felt really good about that, and and I had some good feedback as well. So I want to do more of this sort of stuff, um, partly because I enjoy it, and partly because it will help me see other parts of the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's it's something that I really want to do more of. Um, I'm not sh- there is there wasn't video of the talk, uh, but there may be audio of it um, at some point in the future. Mm. So did people come up after after the talk and uh, discuss it with you? Uh, not immediately after, but during the rest of the conference. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. During the conference, people yeah. brought it up and spoke. With yeah, and I've it. had some emails from people that were there as well because it the, the way that I basically told the story of when I started podcasting to now. So it kind of hit most of the people in the audience who were like either just starting out with the thing they wanted to do, uh, getting ready to want to quit their job, um, starting a business or like having been in a business for a, for a, some time. So it hit a lot of people quite nicely in that way. I'm asking that because that is one of my little metrics for also trying to get at the true impact of a talk is after you have given it at the event, do people come up to you to talk about your talk because everyone you know everyone will applaud at the end and and will say oh it went great but does anybody engage with you about what you said over the course of the event you are at if the answer to that is yes then you have had a successful talk 
that's a way that you can get a sense of people's true reactions to what you have done as opposed to just their polite reactions or just just their like feedback on a little card about oh yeah it was great you know whatever did you you know were you able to actually convince people to come up with you and continue the discussion like if so that's an excellent talk yeah that's a good point yeah like if people want if people just if you get not if you hear nothing about it that's bad news <laughs> yeah and if, if everybody just says something like oh yeah it went great and then they don't mention anything specific about your talk that that's feedback that the next time you give a talk you need to change your strategy so part of my talk focused on what i kind of want to do in my second year of being independent right and having my own business and one of the things that i was thinking about is how i balance my time a little bit better and how i start to think about what are some of the things that i'm currently doing that i don't need to do or i can pass along to somebody else Mm -hmm. so this leads into something that we have been wanting to talk about for quite a long time which is this idea, and these words actually, they came from you and they made it into my talk, which is the idea of what you need to do versus what others can do for you. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I'll I'll try and explain this from the way that you've explained it to me, which is understanding what the jobs are that you are currently doing inside of your business that you can outsource because you don't need to do them or you don't like to do them. And it's all about how you delegate things. And... It, there's kind of an idea of the way that you balance time and money. Like, how much are you money are you willing to pay to get some of your own time back? I've discussed this with a number of people who are running their own businesses or who have started up their own things. And I think, it, let's put it this way. It should be no surprise that the kinds of people who end up creating their own businesses are also the kinds of people who feel like they can do a lot of different things in a lot of different areas and that they don't shrink from doing additional things. Like I even just think sometimes about being a professional YouTuber. There are a surprising number of very different skills that you need to have to make this work at the start, like when you're just a person on your own, you know, you, you need to be able to figure out how to put together a presentation. You need to figure out how to work with video equipment. You need to figure out what you can do to be engaging to some section of the global audience. But then you also need to figure out on your own, all the backend stuff of YouTube, like we were complaining about earlier. And then you also need to start thinking about some of the, the business stuff. And so it's very natural. If you take someone who starts building a business like that, you get very used to doing all of the things yourself. And I'm just speaking about YouTube because that's what I'm familiar with. But I imagine it's very similar for almost any kind of business. It's, It's going to be very similar for almost anybody who starts up their own thing. That at the beginning, when you don't have a business that is generating revenue, you are the person who needs to do everything. Everything is your responsibility. Yeah. But then if the business becomes successful, there comes some point where you have to start letting go of control of a lot of these different areas. And 
again, at least an experience of, of everyone that I have spoken to, nobody picks the right moment to do this. Everybody waits until way, way after they should have done it because they're recognizing like, man, I am just so overburdened with dealing with all of the parts of my business that I just have to bring on someone to help me because other, otherwise I am this bottleneck in my own business and I am the person who is just running me down with the huge number of things that I have to do. But it's, I think it can be hard for that kind of personality type to let go of stuff that you have always done. So I wanted to take a look at some of the things that we do hand off to other people and some mm. of the things that maybe we could and try and understand the reasons that we do and don't for each of these. Okay. So for example, accountants and lawyers. <laughs> now, accountants and lawyers, they do jobs that are very important that if we wanted to, we could learn, right? Me, me and you are smart enough. We could we could take the time necessary at least to do our own taxes because there are people that do that. Mm-hmm. But there's no way in hell I want to put that time in. So I'm more than happy to pay for an accountant and I'm more than happy to pay for a lawyer. Yep. Just to clarify something I just said then, to be nice to accountants and lawyers, I could do it to an acceptable standard, but there's no way I could do it as well as an accountant or a lawyer. Do, do you know what I mean? Like I could, I could learn how to deliver a tax return, but I would end up paying way more tax than I should be paying, or I would get something wrong somewhere. Yeah, the thing, the thing with the accountancy, for example, is I have... I mean, let, let, let's say I've been in business for myself to some extent for, I guess, four years, five years now. Let's say, let's say it's four years. I have done my own accounting for essentially that whole time because it feels like, okay, this is something that I need to be on top of because it's the money coming in and it's the money going out and I need to make sure that things are profitable and I need to have a good sense of, of where everything is. But it is just in the last year that I am in the process of, of handing over the accounting to someone else. And it is the process of doing that that makes me realize, man, I should have done this two years ago. I should have done this as soon as I could have hired an accountant. Because huh. while I can do it, the real question with handing stuff off is, does me doing the accounting really help the bottom line of my business? And the answer to that is very clearly no. That if if I spend a weekend doing all of my accounting, what has the business gained from that? Not, not really very much. I should have spent that weekend making something that the business makes. So for me, that's editing a podcast. It's writing a video. It's animating a video. These are the things that are the stuff that I should be working on in the business. And so I really, really try very hard to, to constantly remind myself that I have these core activities, writing, recording, editing, animating. If I'm not doing one of those four, I should really evaluate if I am the best person to do this thing because those four activities are the core of my business they are to use corporate speak they are where the value is generated in my business 
and the value is not generated in my business in doing the books. That that is a that is a case of where I can hand something over. But it's very hard to let that go because it just feels like such an intimate part of the business. And it's something that I've just been doing on my own for so long that I feel like, oh, but I can do this. So maybe I should do this. It's really funny to me because one of the first things I did when I started was to get an accountant. Because I knew <laughs> there was just no way I would be able to do that stuff efficiently. Yeah. Because I don't understand it. Like, I don't understand any of it. And I don't want to take the time to understand mm -hmm. it. Like, I just, I have no desire to do that. It's like, even when I was making no money, I was still paying an accountant, right? <laughs> it's like, I'm just not, I just not, I'm not going to go through this scenario. So, I have to say, I advise the Mike strategy on this one. Get an accountant way before you yeah. think you ever need one. <laughs> like, as soon as you decide you want to start a business, get an accountant. That is what yeah. I think you need to do because... They help you put so much stuff into place. And if you get a really good one, they end up just becoming a good person you can ask business-like questions to and they can give you just another point of view. And I agree with that exactly for the same way of a lawyer, but I, I don't know if you need a lawyer immediately depending on the type of thing you're looking to do. Yeah, the, the lawyer is a bit of a different case. And the, the lawyer to me is, is uh, an example of something where I... I am under no illusion that I could do what a lawyer could do. Like I could not go to law school and become a lawyer. I just don't think I would be capable of doing that because sure. when I try to read contracts, it's, I swear my brain tries to protect itself by making me fall asleep. It's like I cannot read a contract and focus on it for any length of time. And even when I can, like, okay, I'm bringing all of my concentration to bear on this clause, it still just reads to me like, in my head, it almost sounds like a swarm of bees. It's like, I know all of these words, all of these words are floating around, but I just cannot make any sense out of what this is, this whole other legal language. And it seems like a miracle that lawyers communicate to each other in these terms. And so, yes, I have a lawyer that I send contracts and stuff to, and it always feels like... Thank God she is there to read through all of these paragraphs because I couldn't do it for all of the tea in China. It just wouldn't be possible for me to derive any meaning from most of the contracts that I have to look at. Yeah, I mean, it's and there's, there's all these other things like just making sure that you have all of the paperwork that apparently you need to have that you'd never know you'd need until a lawyer can tell you that it's required. Yeah. Right, it's like, oh, if you don't have this, anyone in the world could sue you and you'd immediately lose. It's like, okay, Mr. Lawyer, <laughs> where do I sign? <laughs> because that's the, like, the system has been created around this sort of stuff, right? And now we're far too deep into it. So if you want to have a serious business, eventually you're going to need to think about some of these things. Yeah. And, and so that's why you end up, again, you could do all of the reading if you really wanted to and you could try and do a job out of it. But you just, at a certain point, you're wasting money because of the amount of time you're spending not doing what your business is supposed to be doing. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. This is where I think there are a bunch of mental tools that you can have which help you think about this stuff. And the number one of these is opportunity cost. Just simply the idea that whenever you're doing something, you can't be doing something else, which sounds like, like duh, that idea is so obvious. But it's very useful to keep in mind of I'm working on this part of my business. 
is this the best part? Like what, like how much revenue am I potentially losing out on by not working on the value generating parts of the business? Like that, that is a real cost. And I actually find it's very helpful in decision making to figure out what that actual number is. And this is where uh, I think I mentioned, oh yeah, I definitely mentioned on one of the previous shows how uh, I use Launch Center Pro as this impromptu time tracker. Yeah, I, I, I want to know more about this one day. I don't <laughs> think you're ever going to tell the world, but I want to see this. Yeah, well, I'll just say, I'll say what I do with it now, which is that I, I, I track the time that I spend on, on various parts of my business. So I'm, I'm able to know pretty accurately how much time did I spend writing or animating a YouTube video versus working on Cortex versus working on Hello Internet. I track all of those in regular units of time for myself. But one of the big reasons that I do that is it's half just because I find that a, a very effective way to work. I just learned that my brain likes timers. So it's like doing these little dashes of work. That's very helpful. But it's also so that I can take some numbers about what revenue is generated by different activities and come up with an exact number for opportunity cost for various things that I do. So when I say like, oh, I have an idea about how much it costs me to work on part X of the business versus part Y, like I actually have a number. I know exactly what that number is. And in a business context, that's also where it's helpful when you think about things like hiring an accountant or hiring a lawyer or like with my personal assistant. I can have some numbers that make sense about how much am I willing to pay in the business to have people help me with various things. Over time, this has been really interesting because I have seen a personality shift in myself in the last maybe year or two where I used to be very, very used to being on top of every single part of my business and keeping track of absolutely everything. And now I find myself much more focusing on, okay, what else can I have other people do or help me with? To the point where, as we were actually discussing uh, just before the show started, I just loathe paperwork of any kind. And I, I used to be really good at always filling out paperwork and making sure all the forms are in are in place and everything is set. And now my opinion on that is largely, okay, my personal assistant knows just about everything about me. Can she just fill out this form for me and submit it for me? I, I can do it. I'm not incapable of writing my name in block capitals in these boxes. But I just, I wouldn't do it for fun. And so this is work. And I have a number, which is, okay, does it make sense for me to pay my personal assistant to do this? If the answer is yes, like, yes, I would love to do this. And any time I can, I can come up with a little solution like that. It's like, yes, this makes, this makes very good sense for the business. Um, the flip side of this is, of course, that over the past two years, this also means that I have been uh, getting a lot more business expenses than I ever used to have. I used to feel like, oh boy, this business yeah. is great. It has no expenses. And now it's like, boy, I have a lot of business expenses that I didn't used to have. But the trade-off is is definitely worth it. But it is interesting to see that this has caused a a personality shift that I notice that trying to always think in this efficient way has really, really driven down my patience for 
certain kinds of activities where it's like, oh God, can I have someone do this? And I really hope the answer is yes. So it can actually, when you get too far into it, can actually be a, de- a detrimental thing because you, you maybe spend more money than you need to because you now have such a low tolerance for, for work you don't want to do. You, you, you will do anything to pay someone to take something <laughs> off your plate, right? Yeah, but this, but this is where the spreadsheets and the numbers act as the sanity check. Right. Where does this not make sense? What should you do and what should you not do? You have to have it some kind of anchoring in reality. Yeah. I really do recommend anybody out there who is running their own business to do the actual calculations of what your time is worth per hour. And the really, the really key feature here is to not lie to yourself about how much time you spend on things. So if you're sitting at home all day and you feel like, oh, I had a whole work day. You don't just get to divide, oh, how much money I earned today divided by the eight hours that I spent in the office. Like this is one of the reasons why I use the timers is I am really, really strict about was this a solid 40 minutes of writing? If it wasn't a solid 40 minutes of writing, it doesn't count. So I, I really do keep a very, very accurate account of this stuff. And if you do that, it is really eye-opening. Like I have convinced a few people to try this. And once they do just a little bit of, of tracking the time and then working out their hourly rates, it does really change how they think about their business and how they're spending their time. So the obvious thing here, like maybe the elephant in the room in, when looking at this scenario is production. So we're talking about the way to like maximize money. And part of the thing we're talking about is take things away from us so we can make more stuff. Mm-hmm. So what if you had people making stuff for you? So I do some of this. I'm not on every show and relay. Yeah, this is your specialty, Mike. Yeah. So we have uh, currently like something like 29, 28 hosts as part of relay, something like that. Um, Man. Between them produce uh, 18 shows. I'm on nine of them. So I'm on a lot. Um, I think there's only there's only like uh, six or seven frequent shows. The other ones are more kind of ad hoc. Yeah, but over time, you are on a decreasing percentage of the total number of shows that Relay produces. Exactly. So that is the idea of me bringing in people because every show produces money for the business of which I, as a business owner, have some of that money, right? Mm-hmm. It's natural. We do all the ad sales, we do the infrastructure, so we work out deals of all of our hosts on a split of the revenue. And so I make money by people doing work, which is the other part of this whole thing. And over time, I'm trying to maybe pull back the amount that I do to push forward more people to do that, right? So I become a facilitator of other people's work. Right? Mm-hmm. So that 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 is how in the long term my business succeeds. Um, is that I have a host of people that are happy to work with me and Stephen on these new shows and that we can help continue to foster talent and make that push our stuff forward. And to be clear, the whole proposition from Relay is the reason why I agreed to do this podcast, or at least it's a big part of it, is I can do this show, but only if I don't have to worry about details X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. Like with the Hello Internet podcast, I am in charge of all of the background uh, logistics and all of the editing, uh, with the exception of ad sales, where I work with someone for that. But I just knew I could not possibly 
replicate all of that for a second podcast. It would just be far too much. And so, yes, that's why it's like, okay, yes, Relay as a company takes a portion of the advertising revenue for this show. But I was very happy to sign up for that if it meant that, oh, I don't have to upload the shows to the website. I don't have to put the show notes together. It's like, this is what we worked out, you and I. And it is a good example of the same kind of thing. Like, having someone else do something and being more than happy to help pay for that. Yeah, like if I take a quick sidebar a moment and and I'll tell this story and you can decide if we keep it in. But when me and you were talking about the split between the two of us Mm -hmm. um, as hosts of the the remaining revenue, um, I was pushing to give you more of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But you were pushing to give me more money. So I was trying to give you a better split. Than what we ended up agreeing on, right? Because I, I as a person looking for talent, wanted to try and make the sweetest deal possible for you, right? That was my thinking. So I will offer you more money because then more money means more likely to say yes, right? But, but you all think think so. That was one part of it. But you were thinking on the other side, I'm saying you wanted to give as much as possible for me to do work wise. So you right. wanted to compensate me accordingly to keep me happy. So we worked out a very, very fair deal. But that re- that resulted in me happily agreeing to do things like all of the YouTube work and the editing and that sort of stuff. Exactly. So that's that's the both sides of this coming into play, which I thought was quite interesting in the way that we ended up coming to the arrangement that we did. Yeah, without a doubt, I was convincing you to take a larger portion of the show and also to do more of the things like I wanted you to be more invested in the show than the original deal was going to be and that that's exactly part of it's like oh in some way I am hiring Relay and Mike to help with a larger portion of the show and so I want to pay for that like that 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 is my perspective on on how that negotiation went down the interesting part of this is you are very much focused on optimizing but you are the bottleneck in your business yeah, this is because I've found a way for my company to generate money that I don't need to actively be a part of. Yeah. So like yeah. I I do the ad sales part, which is a lot of work. But recording the shows is is where the advertising goes on to. So I don't record all of the shows. So I have found a way to optimize my business by creating a scenario in which we have a welcoming environment for many people to come and do their work. Yeah. Now, I remember a long time ago on an earlier episode, we spoke about a scenario that you believed you were trying to look at with your work, but that didn't pan out, right? Yeah, I did. I did at one point try to do an additional YouTube channel and pull together a little team of people to do that. And I realized very quickly that there were a few reasons why it just couldn't work out and also that I might be particularly ill-suited to this exact role. And this is one of the things with cortex that I think is interesting because while you and I are both self-employed the nature of our businesses are very different in that you are working with a very large number of people and you you don't have employees but you do have this company structure yep. whereas I am just an individual there is nobody in my business but me I'm the only person here. There are people that I work with on a freelance basis. Like, like for example, right now I'm working with an artist for uh, a future project. And so, you know, I pay the artist for their assistance, 
but I don't have any, I don't have an in-house artist who I employ who does the work. And this is just a personality difference that I, I just don't think I would be very well suited to be in charge of, of that kind of company. So I make a lot of business decisions to intentionally keep what I'm doing very, very small scale. And in the YouTube world, it's a bit weird. Like it's actually quite easy to end up spinning up your business and having a whole lot of people working with you and for you. Like it is actually quite remarkable when you look into it, how many big YouTube channels are actually small to medium size companies that have changed behind the scenes. Like it still might be the same guy or girl on camera, but you don't realize they have acquired like an entire staff behind them who's also assisting with things. So for me, it's it's just me because that's a, a personality difference, but it does mean that I am the bottleneck for just about everything. Like if I'm having, a, like if it's taking me a long time to write a script, like it is taking a long time to write a script and I am the only one holding up my business. I'm not sure I would use a word like productivity. Like I don't focus on productivity, but I do spend a lot of time thinking about maximizing output per hour. Like like that is really my focus because I am aware that I am always going to be the one who limits the amount of things that I produce because I only have so much time that I'm going to dedicate to work. And so I have to get the most out of that time that I possibly can. And actually, to bring to bring it around, I'll, I'll give you a perfect example of this. So I mentioned before that I haven't done any speaking engagements in a while. And one of the reasons I haven't done that is because when I'm invited to do a presentation somewhere, like there's a conference and they want a speaker. You know, it's just, just like what happened with you. Because I am the bottleneck in my own business, when I get an invitation like that, I, on an actual spreadsheet, do a literal opportunity cost calculation for, I know what my, say, video production time is worth per hour, and then I do an estimate of how many work hours would I lose going to this conference? And this is what I mean by it's very important to know like your value per hour per project. And so I spec out things like, okay, well, I have to do the opportunity cost for the travel days. I have to do the opportunity cost for preparing for the trip, for preparing for the presentation. And I also have to do the opportunity cost for coming back. Because it's very easy to think of a conference as, and conference organizers like to think of it this way, oh, we just want you to come and give a one-hour presentation. It's like, okay, yes, but from my perspective, if you want me to give a one-hour presentation in California, that does not subtract one hour of script writing time from my work schedule. So I do that opportunity cost of, at a bare minimum, like how much in theory would I be losing out by doing this conference. And then I have to figure, well, if I'm going to do this, I don't just want to break even. Like this has to be an actually profitable engagement for me. And so I have to put some kind of markup on that. Mm-hmm. And then the, the answer to all of this is the amount of working time that I would lose by going to a conference almost never ever is going to work out with the amount of speaking fees that an organization can pay. 
Like, and I'm not trying to be a jerk here. I'm not trying to be like, oh, pay me an enormous amount of money. I'm really just trying to do this in the most dispassionate way of, am I willing to delay releasing a video for a conference? And the answer to that question is almost always no. But it is because I am the only person in my business. And because you have a business where you have multiple people working with you and the business generates income, you are much more free than I am to accept more conference invitations. Like that's where this plays out as a difference between the two of us. Like there are very, very many things that I would like to do but that from a business perspective are are very hard decisions to say yes to. Whereas the structure of your business allows you to say yes to a much wider variety of things much more easily than I can. Yeah, and that even goes into, because of the way that my business is structured, next year I'm going to reduce my output in some areas. Mm-hmm. And I can do that safely now, and, it, and the effect that it will make on my income won't be dramatic. Right. Where like if you said, I'm going to make one less podcast a week or I'm going to do one less video a month, that would make a dramatic impact um, oh, on, yeah. on, your, on your income. Yeah, and that just that actually just happened uh, this month. I'm going to, um, I just mentioned on Twitter, I'm probably going to put up an article in the next couple of days. But basically this, this month for various reasons, I had to delay... Uh, a video that was supposed to go up at the end of this month. Like, man, is that a costly business decision that really hurts? Like, it makes a big difference if I can upload a video in a month versus not uploading a video in a month. And that, like, that is the downside of being the guy who is also in total control of everything that's going on of my business is like, I'm also the guy that everything depends on. But I, I pay that price because I'm, I prefer to be an independent person like i'm not sure like i said before i would do very well working with lots of other people so that's that's why i make this decision the way that i do today's episode of cortex is also brought to you by the lovely people over at igloo who make the intranet you'll actually like if you use any kind of intranet product i'm pretty sure that you'd probably be unhappy with it i remember using an intranet in my previous job and i had to use it only on the machine that was connected to my network so i could only be using my intranet stuff while i was sitting at the windows pc that i used to sit in front of for eight hours a day This did not mix with the way that I like to work. I like to be able to work from all of my devices. I like to be able to work from wherever I am. That's just the way that my brain is programmed. And I think that's the way it is for many people these days. And this is what Igloo is all about. You're able to do your work from wherever you want to get your work done. You can manage your task list from your laptop whilst you're maybe not paying full attention on during a meeting. You can share status updates from your phone as you're at the site of a client. And you can even share and access the latest version of a file from home in your pajamas or maybe in the garden with a lovely little drink on a summer's day. Wherever you want to do your work, that's where Igloo can be with you. Igloo is also really customizable and you can do so much to make it look and feel exactly how you want and make it fit with your organization. You can customize the colors, you can add your logo, and you can even permit different parts of functionality to the different teams within your business so everybody has the stuff that they're going to need to get their work done. You can also integrate services like Box, Google Drive, and Dropbox into their big, easy-to-secure 
platform. Because we're so mobile these days, people are increasingly bringing in their own apps inside to their companies and also sharing documents with these services that maybe they shouldn't. Because if you're using stuff personally, it can maybe break some security protocols or something like that that you have. So that's why Igloo have made it possible to integrate these services inside of your secure platform, making sure that people are keeping things where they need to be. So people can store stuff in Dropbox, but it's in the company's Dropbox. It's really, really awesome. They use 256-bit encryption, single sign-on, and Active Directory integrations to make sure that your platform is secure at all times. And you can also use Igloo's own document preview engine to collaborate on stuff and also so you can track who has read things with read receipts. This makes sure that when that new health and safety document goes around, rather than walking around the office with a pen and paper and checking everybody off as you're getting it done to make sure that everyone is on the same page, you will actually be able to just log into Igloo and see exactly who has read it and just bug the people that haven't. It's time to break away from the internet that you hate. Go and sign up for Igloo right now and you can try it out for free with any team of up to 10 people for as long as you want. Sign up at igloosoftware.com slash cortex. Thank you so much to Igloo for supporting this show and Relay FM. So a couple of weeks ago, we spoke about your personal assistant um, mm-hmm. and the way that you work with them on email. And I actually think that it might be a good point now to finish that kind of conversation about your personal assistant. Mm-hmm. Um, because this is obviously a scenario in which you're passing off probably the majority of things that maybe you don't want to do. Because you're paying somebody to to do a lot of the kind of day-to-day menial work, I suppose, that you're not interested in taking care of. Yeah, I wouldn't say necessarily menial work. Like this is I'm trying to think of a word for it that's that I can't. So, <laughs> so here you know. Yeah, but here's here's the way I think about it, right? Because I actually feel like I there's a lot of menial work that I have to do. I'm looking at you, animation, right? Which is incredibly tedious work to do. So why don't you just get someone to do that for you? <laughs> like I'm in this scenario now where we are starting to more seriously consider an audio editor for some mm-hmm. of our shows. Um, and that is partly due to time and partly due to the fact that I'm having some pretty worrying RSI issues at the moment, which we will talk about on a later episode. I want to talk about RSI with you. Yeah, yeah, we should talk about that. But I need to get a better handle of what's going on in my life first before mm-hmm. I feel like I can accurately talk about it. Um, so we're thinking about, you know, basically it's dawned on me that if I lose the use of my hands, we're screwed unless we have a scenario mm-hmm. that we have an editor. Mm-hmm. So we're starting to more seriously think about what that would look like to have somebody um, who could take care of a lot of that stuff for us. Now, you could you could have somebody do the animation for you. And it probably wouldn't make too much of a difference to the presentation of your videos if you think about it objectively, because the majority of the work for you goes in the writing, and then you could storyboard a video and then hand over the animation to somebody else. Whether you want to do this or not, yeah, is yeah, yeah. Thing, but yes, you could do this, right? I mean, I could do it because obviously this is how a company like Pixar works, right? They don't, <laughs> they don't have one dude write and animate Incredibles. <laughs> that's not like, that's not how that movie comes together. Obviously, obviously there are ways that teams can work. Mm-hmm. I just think there are trade-offs involved in having a larger structure like that. I do think the animation style would have to change a little bit, but my, I always, I always have a hard time communicating this, but my problem is that by the time I have finished writing the script, I know exactly how I want animations to go. 
And I'm, also, I'm often writing the script so that the animation lines up in a particular way. And the result is trying to communicate this to someone is a lot of overhead of, of exactly how I want it to be. Now, now, could I get someone else to do it? Of course. But if you have someone else working creatively, I think it's a lot better if you can give them some creative control. And as, as an example here, uh, Dosky, who I work with, who does the Hello Internet animated videos, he has total artistic control over those things. Like we do that together in the sense that he selects audio clips. I approve of the audio clips. He sends me a draft and I approve or make some feedback on the draft and then he makes it. But it is almost entirely under his control and his discretion how he wants those things to look. And I have an element of creative control over this show as well yeah. that you give me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. this is It's a similar thing. Like I, mm. I allow you... Or I allow you. <laughs> I have permitted you yeah. the right in which. Yeah. Audio is a bit different from video, but it's definitely the case that, yes, there is a certain amount of artisticness to how a thing is edited and how it is put together. And so that's a, that's a similar thing. So if I were to ever have someone else animate one of my videos, I would have to write the script differently from the perspective of someone else is going to animate this, which would change the way I would phrase things in some points. And I would also want to give that person much more creative control over what happens because that's the only way I could be happy about it. I couldn't be happy about it imagining, okay, this is exactly what I want. And if it's not exactly what I want, then it's terrible. Right. So I, I would have to change the structure of the way that I do things. And I also think I would have to really be working with someone who was a full-time animator. And then that goes back to the very question of, is that the kind of structure that I want for my business? And the answer is is no at this stage. Like I really just, I don't like yeah. the idea of other people being dependent upon me for their living. This and, is part of the issue that I've had been thinking about an editor is that with the way that I currently do things, I want it picked up immediately. And that usually means that that person needs to have nothing else that they do. Exactly. Or I need to change the way that I think about things. Yeah. Now there's a huge advantage to obviously having someone around to help out full time. What this whole conversation is reminding me of is, again, going back to my days as a teacher, and perhaps the first exposure I ever had with the idea of having someone help you with work. Now, in the school where I first worked, there was a photocopy lady, and she was in charge of the photocopy machine. And so the idea was, if you had some worksheets, you would take one of those worksheets, you'd quickly fill out a little form about how many copies you need and who you are, of course, so she would know where to deliver the photocopies and put it in an in-basket for her and she would make the little photocopies for you. And I resisted so hard using the photocopy lady for maybe the first year, year and a half of being a teacher because I always thought, oh, I can make photocopies. This isn't hard. This is an easy thing to do, and I'm perfectly capable of doing it. Why don't I just make the photocopies? But then I eventually started using the photocopy lady. And when you do that, 
you realize that in order to be able to fully take advantage of someone helping you, you actually need to be more organized in a way. So what this means is if, if I'm going to have someone make the photocopies for my lesson, that needs to be in her inbox at least a day before the lesson is actually going to happen. And so that takes away the option of waiting until the last minute to prepare a lesson and doing the photocopies at the last moment. You have to be like more organized in some ways to take advantage of other people helping you. And so when I started to learn to use the photocopy lady, it meant that I had to be preparing lessons much more in advance than I normally would. But the payoff of that was definitely worth it. Because one of the other things that I find with having people help you with things is unexpected snags can just derail your whole day. And so you know what? The photocopier, it doesn't always work. Or there's a jam. And then suddenly you're doing something at the last minute and now you're trying to fix a paper jam in the photocopier or the photocopier is out of paper. And so now you need to go to the stockroom to get some paper and to fill it up. Whereas if you're doing things more in advance, all of these problems just disappear, right? They just, they just go away. And so I'm thinking with you, for example, and talking about bringing on an editor possibly for the podcasts, this means that you need to change some aspects of your business mm -hmm. about what is the turnaround time on, on podcasts. It means if you're going to have someone do this, you can't have a really rapid turnaround. It may mean that there's going to be a multiplication of the number of things that you can produce or a reduction in the number of hours that you are working, both of which are good. But it does fundamentally change some of the things that happen in your business. And in my own analogy here with my own life and with animating, it's like, yes, if I did bring on an animator, maybe I could produce more, but it would dramatically increase the cycle time. And quite frankly, I like being able to finish a script and then have the video up relatively fast, right? That I'm just going to grind through a few days of animating and getting it done. Like that's something that I actually don't want to change like i don't want the the trade-off that's involved there but anyway it's it's just it, this stuff is just very very connected with who you are and and how you run your business but to get back to your original question where you were talking about having my personal assistant do the grind work <laughs> i feel like that is not necessarily the case I think that in my mind, I am passing off to her a lot of what I think of as administrata work. It's, it's administration That's the word I was stuff. Looking for. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Some of it is surprisingly difficult or complicated. And as an example, uh, a little while ago, uh, she was on the phone with like the, the tax or the, the business sub department of the IRS to oh. fill out some papers and to get some forms to have the right number to give to the UK for a business that exists both in the US and, and in the UK. And it's like, boy, that work is, is administrata work. It is, it's not grind work because there's lots of questions that need to be answered correctly and forms that need to be filled out. But it is something that I would just, I, I don't think I could bring myself to do it anymore, <laughs> to be on the phone and 
repeating long strings of numbers to tax people in different countries. Like I just couldn't possibly manage doing that. And from the perspective of, you know, CGP Grey, the YouTube channel, like that doesn't help get a video made any faster spending a day doing that kind of work. All right. Having somebody be on the phone to the IRS for you, I think, is a real issue of trust. And trust is an important part of this. And I want to put a pin in that just for a moment because I want to just jump back a step. Um, How did you find your personal assistant? The way this came about was I just tried a series of uh, companies that specialize in this stuff. So if you search for virtual assistant, there are just a bunch of companies that will attempt to match you with someone based on your needs. And they all make it sound like it's going to be magic right from the start. Like, oh, don't worry, we're going to find a perfect person who you can just work with. And in my experience, it took several tries to find someone who meshed with me. Mm-hmm. And uh, the current person that I'm working with now is the second long-term personal assistant that I've worked with. Uh, the So it, it's not an easy thing to just immediately find someone. And there were a few people who were just, at least for me, not great to work with, who uh, I didn't think did really, really excellent work. I'm going to highly recommend that if anyone out there is trying to find a virtual assistant, this is not the place to cheap out. (laughs) Like if don't try to get someone on the other side of the earth who's going to work for $7 an hour. It seems like it's a really tempting thing to do, but my experience has led me to believe that that is a terrible, terrible decision that you will regret. Like it'll just end up being more work then it's worth. I would recommend, you know, find someone who speaks your language as their native language. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know this? <laughs> I get what you're saying. Like it sounds, because it's funny, getting, so finding someone who speaks your language is a, is a metaphor, but you mean it literally. I do mean it. I do mean it literally, but it's just that there are enough communication problems with yeah. someone you're working with just normally that you know for me obviously i need someone who speaks english fluently as a first language but whatever your first language is make sure that person speaks that as their first language as well that is an absolute requirement i think because there's just enough barriers already to communicating clearly with other human beings and then again I, i would be looking for someone who has a lot of experience which means they're going to be charging a bunch of money but again, okay. this is a business decision. And this is going back to like your, the return on investment or the opportunity cost spreadsheet before. You should be looking at the value of your time. And the answer is you are finding someone who the, the cost for their hourly work is less than the value of your time from a business perspective. Right? So would you advise that before somebody goes down a route like this, they need to understand the value of their hours? Yeah, you cannot make this decision unless you have a very good sense of what your hourly work is. Because really, you need to be paying less than that. Yeah, and to, and you know when I say this is not a place to cheap out, like some some of the uh, like at the really high end of this, like there there is this is a fascinating world, but there's this whole world of like executive assistants yeah. and super high end executive assistant placement services. And 
the numbers that some of those company char companies charge are just crazy. Like you cannot believe how much the apex of the apex of personal assistants can earn. But the thing is, they are working for people like Bill Gates. <laughs> Whereas I assume as well, like we can't really perceive that like the amount of money you would pay because we also can't perceive just the level of the work that they do. Yeah, exactly. Like I imagine when you get up to that level, it's like you just don't need to worry about anything anymore because your assistant will take care of it. I'll see if I can find it for the show, but there was an article that I was reading which was talking about some of the highest tier executive assistants. And one of the reasons why those executive assistants are able to charge such high rates is that those assistants, they use a networking service that puts them in contact with the other executive assistants of very high level people. So, oh, that makes so much sense. Right? So they are acting as a conduit across very high level social and political circles. Yeah, the way they get things done is by talking to each other. Exactly. So <laughs> oh, you are actually genius. really buying into this whole network of yeah. people. Yeah, what you get is access to everyone. Right, and so it's, it's a case of, you, you can say someone like a very high-level business executive needs to get the chancellor of some country on the phone, right? And like they, they can just pass it off to their assistant and say, you need to make a meeting happen with X. And that assistant can charge such crazy high rates because they are in contact with a whole network of other assistants at a very high level, and they can try to work that out amongst themselves to see if they can make this happen. But I, I bring all of this up because, again, it's just the value of someone like Bill Gates or like Richard Branson or Elon Musk or any of these guys, the hourly value generation from them is just crazy and so that's why they can afford to have very high level very expensive people helping them out but if you you know like <laughs> we are not elon musk here like we're not in that position but you still need to have an understanding of where you are are in this hierarchy of people who you can have assist you and my advice is to probably go higher than you think you should as long as it is lower than like your hourly value. So let's go back to this trust thing. So you found the, you've, got, you've gone to the service, you found the person and you've been working with them for an element of time. Mm -hmm. Eventually, I mean, I assume you start them off with smaller tasks, right? Just to test to see if they're a fit for you. Oh yeah. Where this do is... you start? Like, what do you what do you give to someone to begin on this path? Because you can't just be like, "Here's the password to my email account." Go crazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, there are there are definitely boundaries which I would not cross. Uh, again, talking about some of YouTube frustrations from before, the way the whole YouTube system works is that you have a password that allows you to access everything, which is like the, the video upload, also all the emails, absolutely everything. That's a, that's a kind of very high level thing, which I wouldn't trust anybody in the world with just because it's so, it's like the beating heart of my business. And if anything yeah. goes wrong, I want to be the one who messed it up, not somebody exactly. else. Like that right? trust element isn't, I think that you're stupid and you do something wrong. The trust element was if you had an act, if you did something by accident, exactly. you could have a catastrophic effect on everything. 
Exactly. I'll give you an example of a company that does things well that I wish more companies would follow. But MailChimp has a like a sub-account level where you can give someone access to setting up something in MailChimp for you, but they can't have the authority to press the button to send. They can just set it up so that you have the authority to review it and then only you can press the send button. Do you think YouTube have this for some people? They must do, right? Because there are such big companies and organizations that use YouTube. It can't just be one password that everybody shares. I wonder if this is something that has changed, but I can say for a fact, as of at least two years ago, they didn't have anything like this because I knew of gigantic companies that just had some dude who has the password to their account and has access to everything. Look, I just did a Google search for YouTube for teams and there's Mm -hmm. nothing, which I cannot believe that doesn't exist because Twitter has it, right? Yeah, I think they're bringing on a few tools now. Like I think there's a little bit more of this with with, uh, some of the Google Plus integration, but it's not enough and it's not adequate. So I, I bring this up simply because there's a certain amount of what I might call structural trust in that there are ways that you can have someone help you because limitations are built into the system. Like there is trust structurally there. It doesn't depend on you actually trusting the human being. But ideally, you want someone that you actually can trust. And so, yeah, that's something you have to build up over time. And what I used as my initial test with the personal assistants that I was trying, some of whom worked out, some obviously many of whom didn't, was I would send a uh, script that I had marked up by hand to have corrections made. And so I think if, hmm. if you... Um, if you take a look at that uh, that iteration blog post that I wrote a while back, I have an yeah. example of some scripts that I would mark up by hand. And I would pass that off to someone and say, I need these corrections made on this text file. But here's the thing. I write all of my text files in Markdown, which is a, a very lightweight markup language so that you can mark out things like italics or a link or bold. It's not really complicated, but you just need to know a couple of things. And so as this first test project, what what I would say to the person is, here is my original text file. It's written in Markdown. Here is a PDF of the changes that I want made, which are written in my abysmal handwriting. This document is written in Markdown. You need to go look up the syntax and... Just make sure that any of the changes are compatible with Markdown. It's a good test. Right? That's, That's exactly test. it. It's an yep. excellent test because I'm trying to see if they can figure out something. It's not complicated, but it's just something that almost nobody would have run across before under normal circumstances. Yeah. It's ever so slightly nerdy, the idea of a markup language. And then also... I know very well exactly how all of those corrections are supposed to be made. And I want to make sure that someone reading through what I have written can understand and make all of the corrections in the way that I want done. And I would get back some abysmal things. I mean, a couple people just right out of the gate, it was just no. Was I get back a Word document, right, where someone's copied and pasted the text file into a Word document and sent it to me. And part of the original instructions is 
you are modifying this text file, right? Like I'm not, I don't want a different document back. I want this thing back. So there's a lot of, a lot of stuff like this. You'd be surprised when you're trying to work with someone. It's like communication difficulties or there's little ways that things can go wrong that you would never expect. So that was always my first test. And some people just failed immediately. Um, but from there, like if someone can do that, then you can start working up to to bigger things. But I did notice with a few of the first assistants that I work with, they were okay at these very low-level tasks, but I found myself not wanting to use them for higher-level tasks. And then that was a sign of like, you know what, I don't want to work with this person. Um, and, an, and an example of a higher-level task is when someone is representing me to somebody else. So I don't know if we, have we discussed uh, meetings? I don't remember if we discussed meetings on the podcast. Not really. Okay. So as an example of a higher level task is I occasionally have my personal assistant set up a meeting for me with someone else. Now, again, this is something I would totally be capable of doing on my own, but it's nice to be able to have somebody else work out, say, time zones or available times. But that's a higher level task because not only is the person just doing the thing, but I also want them to be representing me well to a third party. And so uh, like recently, my personal assistant set up a meeting with a domain expert for a future project. And like, I want to be able to know and be able to rely on that just going smoothly. And that's a higher level task where it's harder to define what how is it to be nicely interacting with someone else like you just you can't write that down in words as a series of instructions but you need to be able to trust that someone can do that how do you get to the point then when you can say to somebody here is my email here is the most important communication method in my business you now have access to what comes in you could send something out. You see stuff that I don't let other people see. Um, like, how do you get to that point? Well, for me, having a one-person business, I don't think I ever really need to get to the point where someone else is controlling directly all of the email accounts that I use. Like that, like that is that is just like the YouTube password. It is a beating heart of the system, and so the the way that I I work things out with my assistant is that I have a bunch of rules that forward stuff to her mm-hmm. that comes through my account, and then it filters that stuff out of of my view, so I don't see it. But this is a this is a case of what I mean by structural trust. Like certain messages go to her. And she is able to reply to them. But that's very different from, say, handing over the keys to my primary email account. Sure. But no system is perfect. And there are going to be things that that she will see that you would maybe prefer that she didn't eventually over time if that hasn't happened already. So that's where the human trust comes in, right? Oh, yeah. So that definitely requires a a certain amount amount of trust. And that kind of thing only comes from working with someone over a long period of time. It's, there's no test that you can necessarily do with that. Mm. So it's, it's all about having, having increased the number of things that you are willing to rely on someone for and that they have successfully helped you out with in the past and that continuing onward 
over time. There's there's no way around that. That's that's the only way to have it work. But I mentioned the thing about being a, a single person business before because at a certain level, this is again goes to like why very high level assistants are almost certainly extraordinarily expensive as well is because like I don't think someone like Elon Musk is really in charge of his personal email anymore. Like he really shouldn't be. I don't. I don't think there should ever be a time where where like he sits down. And he's like, "Oh, let me check my email. Click right, refresh. Oh, what came in? Like someone should be filtering almost everything that gets to him at that point." Saying about that, what about Apple executives? Because there's always these stories of like them replying to individuals. What do you think about that? You know, like someone will write and complain about something in iOS, and they'll write back with a little note. Yeah, I, I wonder about that. My guess is that they find it useful sometimes to dip into a stream of unfiltered stuff. Yeah. So you can write, you know, Tim at Apple.com. Or was it is it T Cook? I don't know. What is his address? I forget what the what the Probably official T. one Cook, is. I think. Yeah. I think it's T Cook, but so you can write to him, but I don't imagine that he's using that email in any kind of work function. I think that that just might be a useful tool for him to just see like what is coming in from the unfiltered outside world just to calibrate every once in a while his sense of things. Like that might be my guess about what some of the higher level up people are doing. But I, I just have a hard time imagining that at a, at a really extremely high levels, it really makes sense for a person to really be doing with their own email anymore. Like you just you just have to have someone that you rely on to to filter and present to you the most important things that are coming through this stream. And I remember a while ago you were talking about using stuff like Wonderlist or Wunderlist, as I like to call it, <laughs> um, as a way to share tasks. Has that panned out over the long term? Yeah, yeah, that's definitely that's definitely something that I still use. I actually just added something to Wunderlist today. Wunderlist. Wunderlist. It's not, no, it's not Wunderlist. It's German, Wunderlist. man. It's Wunderlist. Okay. If, Remember if we went something. through this before? Yeah, I know we went through this before, but I'm not giving up. So yes, mm-hmm. I added something to Wonderlist today. And uh, I, I have to say, I quite like that as a tool for communicating with another person, these kind of actionable tasks. It's much better than email because I can open it up and I can see a list of, okay, here are the 10 to 15 things that I can have some assistance on. And you can leave comments on, on Wonderlist so that the other person can see and I can reply to those comments very easily on Wonderlist. And it keeps everything together with a with a project. So I really like that as a as a method for assisting working together with someone. I'm not sure it would be great for a team, but I think for like two people working together, Wonderlist is is a pretty good tool. Yeah, that that does sound pretty wonderful, I must say. Yeah. Um me and Stephen have been using Trello recently mm-hmm. um, as a way to like plan out some stuff together, and that's a tool that that we quite like, like for some like future projects and things like that. So I just wanted to start that one out there because that is actually a pretty good tool. We we tried Vindalist a few times, and when we were launching, it was very useful for us because there was a lot of like you need to do this, I need to do this, you need to do this. But now we kind of both just manage our own systems and communicate about it um, because you know he's the person that I work with the closest because we have to run our business together uh, but we we've tried using systems like that but neither of us are all in on that system personally mm-hmm. so that's where it starts to, to fall down a bit because then i'm checking two to-do list systems which doesn't 
on like you know I, as we've been through before i use different systems for different things but most of my tasks are relay related tasks and i, I don't want two different lists that are relay related um, and right now Vendor list is not the system that i feel most comfortable in using um on a day-to-day basis uh but Trello is definitely one which is very good as a way to like outline and, and picture longer-term projects and bigger projects and stuff like that. And it's a good way to keep track of that kind of stuff. Yeah, I played around with Trello a little bit. Uh, it is. Uh, it looks like it's optimized for, I think, you, I think I just realized this is one of those words I've read, but I've never said out loud. It's optimized for a Kanban system or Kanban. Do you know the correct way to pronounce that? Yeah, I kn- no, I know what you you're talking know. about. I'm gonna I'm gonna call it a Kanban system. We'll call it Kanban, uh, <laughs> Kundaban. Um, I, th- I think that there's a method of programming, right, which lends itself quite well to Trello. Um, but I can't remember what it's called. Yeah, you, you're talking about. Um, Is it Agile? Yeah, Agile. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I was just blanking out on it, but uh, we'll put a link to, or I'll say we will, but I really mean you will. <laughs> you will put a link to Kanban in the show the notes. Royal way. <laughs> yes. It is an interesting system that I have looked into and I have tried for myself um, and I have adopted some parts of. But Kanban is very good for high level and I think bigger teams of we have these big blocks of a project that we are trying to move forward. And so, yeah, if you're on a bigger team, that definitely seems like it might be a a better tool to use. It was one of the things I did also evaluate for thinking about what's a tool for me to use with my assistant and rejected it very quickly because of that. It was like, oh, this is not great if it's just two people. Uh, It's a little bit too much or it's just just not optimized for that. But yeah, if you're in a bigger team, I think that's something to look at. To to kind of put a bow in this section for now. Yeah, this big, messy, rambly all over the place section. That's why it needs a bow, right? To just tie it all together uh, (laughs) and collect it all up nicely. Look at this mess. It looks so much nicer with a bow on top. Uh (laughs) How long have you had a personal system for? Uh, Maybe three years in some form. So this is something you'd recommend to people then, basically. That's that's what I want to know. Yeah, it's definitely something I use way less in the beginning and something that I constantly think about how can i use more of like i I underutilize this resource for some of the things that we for some of the reasons that we mentioned earlier in this in this conversation that it is difficult to let go of of some areas of your business before we leave today i wanted to just very briefly mention your six degrees of mike idea oh yeah um have you seen any notable progress on on the the desired outcome that you wish for this so the one that I have seen, which is the closest, is the one that you have in the show notes, yep. which is six degrees of Mike.net with, with all hyphens. Yeah, yeah, with hash. Like six hyphen degrees hyphen. I, I feel like you probably could have got it all in one, right? <laughs> I can't imagine that that was taken up. No, I'm sure six degrees of Mike.com was already purchased. <laughs> yeah, of course. So this, this actually, yeah, it is definitely the system which is closest to what I envisioned. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of put me or any other podcaster in and then select from, from a drop-down menu, then select another person and see what their connection is. And this is built by Alex. Um, and it's closest to what I would like it to be. Mm-hmm. But I personally, if I was to ask for something which I don't really have any right to do, would like to see more people in this list, way more people in this list, 
and some of the connections need to be tied up because there are I do actually have some connections to people that it says I have no connections to. Yeah, see, Mike, here's how this works. You 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 obviously you obviously can't request that this person change anything in particular. No. But we like the six degrees of Mike idea. The idea of having a gigantic network of all podcasts and how they are connected to each other. Just because it's fun. It's a it's a fun thing. And I would also like to see the big web of how all podcasters are connected and be able to do these little calculations and, and see what see what the hops are from one person to another. So while it is a monstrous task to attempt to do this, you know that if you are a person who makes progress on this, you are very likely to be mentioned on the show. <laughs> In very, very glowing uh, light here right. as well. So if within the next couple of weeks, you know, six, the number degrees of Mike.co appears and it has a massively improved database, you know we might mention it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very likely. So that, that's how this works. There's an incentive out there in the world to create this thing that we would like to see. But so far, we're going to plug six dash degrees dash of dash Mike dot net <laughs> as the current leader in podcasting host connector technology.